cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, October 4th, 2011. Okay, yeah, this one, yes, yes. Man, I feel like I'm chasing time today had lunch with uh, Phil Johnson and his wife they are visiting central Indiana it was wonderful to see him thanks for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we have got to do the comparative work. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. And uh, and so, <clears throat> lots of stuff going on today. Kind of trying to ease back into a little bit more of a normal programming schedule. Um, and I'm woefully behind on my uh, on my work at the moment. And uh, I won't don't want to get into all the details of that, but. Uh, Hopefully I'll be able to catch up in the next 24 hours. I, I'm, I'm having, um, I, I'm, I'm having uh, feelings of confidence. I'm having feelings of exuberance, and and <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to find any way that I can to get my mind off of football. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts uh, <clears throat> lost again. But it was a great game. It was exciting all the way up until <clears throat> when they lost. So, uh, yeah, anyway, we won't talk. I, 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 I've told you it's going to be a constant lament, and uh, I'll try to get over it. I'm not sure how I'm going to, but I will endeavor to uh, persevere. All right, so uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got an extreme prophetic update with a, with a, a new voice, so to speak. Uh, there's a new gal that uh, there at the Extreme Prophetic website who we'll be listening to today as she talks about how God apparently is positioning us to uh, rise up. Her name is uh, uh, Barbie um, <coughs> uh, Breathit or Breathit. Yeah, I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name, but anyway, <coughs> it's going to be Extreme Prophetic time with Barbie. And uh, so she's got a video out there called God is Positioning Us. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can't wait to share this one with you. It's uh, 
again, you know, the question I have is, is that how is it that any of the folks there at the extreme, uh, extreme prophetic website are qualified to teach anybody anything regarding the Bible like at all? Um, you know, it kind of, kind of falls into this category and that is that, um, you either are going to follow people who are correctly and rightly handling God's word or other people who are basically teaching you their own dreams and visions as if that is uh, equivalent to or synonymous with the word of God. It seems like the folks over there at Extreme Prophetic are super high on the uh, so-called dreams and visions from God, um, but are, like seriously lacking uh, when it comes to any, um, well... Decent, uh, correct, uh, right, truthful, faithful handling of uh, God's word at all. And, and always, again, you know, we get misdirected away from Christ and him crucified for our sins and sound biblical doctrine, and we steer into the absurd. So uh, that's what usually happens when we play folks from Extreme Prophetic. That would include uh, the Holy Ghost answering machine, machine Melissa Fisher, uh, and Patricia King, uh, you know, any of the folks uh, that we cover over there. And, you know, and technically Todd Bentley still kind of falls in the same camp, although his, his fresh fire ministries, um, I'm not sh so sure how, if it's, if it's really caught fire for the second time, uh, you know, after his affair and, and then marrying his babysitter and, st and stuff like that. So uh, we're going to be taking a look at uh, Barbie, uh, <clears throat> breath it, breathe it. I, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Um, and then, uh, as promised yesterday, uh, well, let's see here. One more thing. Um, over the weekend, um, I uh, I saw a tweet sent out by Keith Kraft. Um, if you're not sure who Keith Kraft is, let me remind you. Yeah, that's right. If, if if you don't remember Keith Kraft, Keith Kraft is the uh, inventor of the mariachi trench. Somehow associated with the number 11, and that's somehow bad. And these are the sounds that emanate from the mariachi trench. You know, by the way, I did have Mexican food today uh, at lunch with uh, Phil Johnson and his uh, lovely bride. And... Uh, we did talk about certain um, evangelical pachyderms, um, referring to the Elephant Room Conference. Anyway, uh, speaking about the Elephant uh, Room uh, Conference, uh, yeah, uh, Keith Kraft, let me, let me see if I can pull this up on his Twitter account. Uh, Twitter.com forward slash Keith Kraft. This would be Keith Kraft, the inventor of the Mariachi Trench, uh, the pastor who's known for his think be do theology um and uh, you know he sent out a tweet over the weekend really excited to share a, a a picture with his followers on twitter that he had just taken with two of his new best buddies one of them you've heard of um quite a bit the other one i haven't mentioned on this program but uh, after spending some time perusing his uh, stuff i'm 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 excited to announce that he will be a regular feature here at fighting for the faith anyway keith craft uh, the uh, bodybuilder creator of the mariachi trench and think be do theology uh he was uh, spotted this weekend with um <clears throat> stephen furtick and a guy by the name of uh david crank david crank he is uh the uh, pastor of a of a well a kind of, how shall i put it word of faith uh 
church called Faith Church in St. Louis, Missouri. He and his wife um, are the pastor and pastrix, uh, respectively, there at uh, Faith Church. And, of course, uh, Stephen Furtick was there in St. Louis, Missouri this weekend uh, preaching uh, something, I'm sure, regarding the sun standing still at uh, David Crank's church. And, of course, Keith Craft was, Keith, Keith Kraft was so excited, he decided to show up. So I, I, I've added this to my iPhoto library, uh, the uh, the wonderful picture of <clears throat> the inventor of the Mariachi Trench, the guy who created the Sun Stand Still uh, prayer, uh, nowhere to be really found in Scripture, and a new guy who will be featuring here from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith by the name of David Crank. And all of this kind of leads to uh, the next thing, and that is is that uh, we uh, come to find out via the Twitter stream, uh, the Twitterverse, uh, the Twitter news service, I don't know how to exactly put it, but that uh, that uh, Stephen Furtick had spent some time yesterday talking nuts and bolts regarding uh, television ministry with uh, none other than, um, again, a heretic, uh, Joyce Meyer. And so kind of leads to the question, where is all of this going? Um, I, I, I'll make a prediction. I think Stephen Furtick met with Joyce Meyer because uh, he's getting ready to begin producing his own full-blown television program that will also be featured on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Now, I, I can't prove this. This is just a prediction that I'm making. But uh, one of the things I've noticed is, is that TBN has begun to make uh, very public and overt overtures to uh, men like Stephen Furtick, Keith Kraft, and David Crank, all of you know, all of whom seem to represent kind of a younger set of people, and so I, I, I predict that you know before too long, Stephen Furtick will be a, a well a regular feature out there at uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, when his television show finally gets up and running, you won't be able to theologically tell the difference between Stephen Furtick, Joyce Meyer. Uh, Keith Kraft, David Crank, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, um, old Kenneth Hagen. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, when this is all said and done, uh, we can say that uh, we remember the days before Stephen Furtick uh, was a, uh, a, a word of faith televangelist. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's the direction that he's heading. So anyway, it's, it's weird company that he's keeping there, Joyce Meyer. Keith Kraft, the inventor of the Mariachi Trench, and David Crank. Uh, by the way, David Crank, um, <clears throat> there's a spent some time on their YouTube channel today, and uh, you know, kind of give you a feel for the things that David Crank talks about. By the way, we'll be doing a David Crank sermon review today, just to give you an idea of the company that uh, Stephen Furtick keeps, as well as uh, uh, you know, as well as you know, the kind of stuff that we should be seeing more of, I'm sure, on TBN. But to uh, David and his uh, wife Nicole. Uh, recently did a sermon series about love and marriage, and of course, they took Ed Young's idea and they put a big bed on the stage there at their um, um, uh, at church uh, worship center, um, um, life tune-up center. I'm not sure what it is, but anyway, and uh, what was really weird is, um, is that, well, uh, along with the bed, there was a monkey. Uh that was on the bed. Yeah, here, listen in. Here, because this is a trained ape. Come on, give the little monkey a hand. Sweet little monkey. Yeah, that's David Crank. 
And the reason why this ape is here and other apes are just running around untrained is because this ape is worth money. This ape gets a widow paycheck because this ape has been trained. The way the trainers trained it, though, they didn't beat the fire out of the ape. They trained it with good treats. When the monkey did what they wanted the monkey to do, they give the monkey grapes. So the key to our training tonight is whoever in here has hair on their back, you're the one that's going to get trained at the end of this deal, okay? So, yeah, um, the it's kind of weird. Uh, David Crank there and, and his uh, wife, Nicole, uh, basically the reason why they got an ape in the bed is because the ape is symbolic of the guys at the... Um, at their, um, their well, their place, and uh, and so if you're a dude and you got hair on your back, uh, this this next part of the video that's posted on the their um, YouTube account is going to teach you all uh, how. Hey, well, at least teach your your women how to um, train your ape. And so tonight our goal is to help you, res you know, get get on the next level with your marriage, and, and we're going to do that. Now, here's kind of interesting thing about guys is that guys and girls think absolutely differently. They think different about life, and girls have this preconceived idea that a man is supposed to want to do things for her without her even asking. And I'm telling you, that's not going to happen. You have to ask a guy, and it's not enough to ask a guy one time. It's not enough to ask a guy two times. <laughs> You got to keep on asking. The Bible said you have not because you ask not. But and girls have this idea said, about marriage and they think that, you know, oh, it's just wonderful. And they have this, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. How, how's it go? Way up, Way up high. high. <laughs> All of my other girlfriends have good husbands. Why, oh, why can't I? <laughs> Okay, but maybe the reason why you don't have a good husband is maybe, you know, we both need to work on this communication thing. You got to train your ape. Look at the person next to you. And yeah, I mean, isn't that just great? I mean, you show up to a thing that supposedly is a church service, and um, if you're a guy, you're basically likened to being an ape. And, uh, and you know, rather than teaching the Bible, instead they're going to give tips on how your wife can train you. I'm going to work on training you. I'm going to work on training you, baby. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, just like when you come into the house, what happens is guys, they, you do stuff for me all the time. And what do you do when you do stuff for me? I like to be bragged on, you know I mean? She, she trained me how to, to load a dishwasher, you know, and, and uh, how many it know? It took six years. Took, took a while to, to load, but you know, there's also a dilemma when guys go to load the dishwasher. I remember one particular day I went in to load the, to, to get, put my, I have no idea what this has to do with the Bible, but this is all, it, it, this is great information. Uh, love and marriage uh, train your ape uh, tips. Wow. Stuff in the dishwasher. When I went to put it in, it was full of clean dishes. And how many know that's a moral dilemma for a man? You're like, oh, okay, my training didn't go this far. And so, but then I thought, oh, I got a good idea. I will unload the dishes and put them in where they belong or the, the best of my ability. And after I was done, then I put my dirty dishes in it. And then I did what guys do. I waited for her to come home because there's just something about the way she's trained me. She trained me to where all I really want is for her to come in and go, Oh, you're such a good man. I love you. <laughs> treat, 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 treat. You're so strong and smart and hot. Woo, come on. <laughs> Let's get it on. 
treat, treat, treat. <laughs> but the thing is, ladies, that's it. We got to think about how do we treat our man? Mm -hmm. Because so many times, here's what happens. He comes in and he's sitting here expectantly waiting for me and to just pat him on the face and tell him how good he is. Do, do I need a crucified and risen savior for the, Is this part of sound biblical doctrine? Yeah, I'm sure this is relevant. Yeah, you know, steps on how to train your ape. Thanks to Pastor and Pastrix, uh, David and Nicole Crank. But what happens is I walk in the door from work and I walk in and I'm like, okay, I just had to pick up the kids from practice and now I got to fix dinner and I got to unload the groceries and he didn't unload the groceries from the car and the trash has not been taken out yet. And why is he getting the remote for the television? We have a lot to do and the house is a mess and I have to clean and uh, well, at least he unloaded the dishwasher. Let me start dinner. And I completely missed the opportunity to celebrate the fact that he did something because I'm so busy doing what I do. Yeah, you don't want to miss any good opportunities to train your ape. Or here's what's even worse. He completely unloaded the dishwasher, so now I have to start dinner, and why did he put this stuff in the glasses shelf? That goes on the coffee mug shelf. Dave, you put the glasses on the coffee mug shelf. Do you think he is ever, ever gonna wanna unload the dishwasher for me again? Of course not, you're, you're not properly training your ape. No. I just beat the poor little monkey. I was supposed to be loving this monkey and I just beat the poor little monkey, right? I'm supposed to be appreciating this cute thing in my life. Does anyone, do, do any of you other guys listening to this um, just bristle at being compared to a monkey or an ape that needs to be trained? Yeah, Christian church is just full of male knuckle draggers out there. Well, the Bible talks about that in Matthew 7. Verse 12, in the Message Bible, it says it really great. It says, here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you... Yeah, so notice she's reading a verse from the Sermon on the Mount, which has nothing to do with training your ape. Um, <laughs> this is just so bad on so many levels. Uh, and from the message paraphrase, so, you know, so here, apparently Jesus, when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount... When you translate it into the message paraphrase, comes out with ape training advice. Okay. Want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. You know, the Bible makes it pretty clear that if we spend less time trying to get what we want and spend more time trying to give what we want, we will end up getting what we want so bad. It's a matter of giving what we want. I want him to give me love and adoration and praise and soundness and security. But unless I'm giving it to him, I'll never see it. You'll never see it. You know, how many ever heard of a little statement called men are from Mars, what is it, women from Venus or wherever it is. And the, the bottom line is you're from America and she's from America. <laughs> yeah, that's deep. Okay. Men are not, and women are not from two different places. Now, we have, I understand the, the concept of that, but if you read that book, it's a really cool little story. It goes like this. One day, the man who wrote the book, he was asked by his wife, hey, will you take me to the opera? But it doesn't really sound like that to a guy. So now he's quoting a story from the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, during the sermon time, that, where he's co-teaching with his pastrick's wife, Nicole. It sounds like, will you take me to the opera? Will you take me to the opera? Will you take me to the opera? Ha, 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 ha,
Wait, 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 wait. It's, it's kind of nagging. The Bible says in Proverbs, it's better to live in a corner of an attic than with a contentious woman because it's like a continual dripping of water. Now, remember I said you can't just ask one time, but you've got to sow love, then you get love out of one another. So you're not harassing your monkey. You're training your monkey, okay? So he's... We're asking, she's asking, hey, will you take me to the opera? He said, I really don't want to go to the opera. She said, will you please take me to the opera? He said, okay, I guess I call that stupid opera. I hate dressing up like a penguin, but I guess I will. And so he went to the opera. So he's at the opera. He's having kind of a boring time. And then after... Yeah, this is just really entertaining. It's super relevant if you haven't figured this out already in your marriage. Um, But yeah, I don't know what this has to do with the job of a pastor, male pastor, to preach the word. He goes to the opera, the true story. They come home, and, and when they get ready to come home, what he's looking for is this, you know, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. But something absolutely wonderful happened to this guy. True story. He comes home from the opera. He comes in the garage door. He hits the garage door. As soon as the garage door started closing, she grabs his hand and says, don't get out of this car. Bow, chicka, wow, wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's just a that that's just a sampling of uh, David Crank, uh, who will be a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith in our sermon review section. Since I mean, he's such good friends with Stephen Furtick. Oh man. Anyway, uh, yeah. Let's let's uh, while we're into the absurd, I just I just love it when pastors. Uh, uh, well, actually, Nicole's not a pastor. She's not a pastrix either. There's no such thing. Um, biblically, uh, that's forbidden. Anyway, um, yeah, so I just enjoy it when the people during the sermon time who are supposed to be teaching God's Word use that as an opportunity to basically um, teach you strategies on how to train your monkey, referring to your husband. Boy, that's just great. But, uh, let, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, maybe this will make me less offended. Uh, this this is from the Extreme Prophetic website uh, from Barbie um, Breathit. I, I think that's her name. Anyway, Barbie Breathit, uh, the name of this is God is Positioning Us. Yeah, not sure what that means, but uh, let's let Barbie explain it. Uh, he, here she is. Always speaking to his people, and a lot of times we have questions about what is God doing? What, is, in that, what does our future hold? How can we prepare to walk into a successful future? And how can we apprehend everything that God has possible for us? We know that God is a God of the supernatural. And he has equipped each one of us to hear his voice, to sense his presence. And I believe that God is visiting us through dreams and visions of the night. And he's giving us keys that are going to help us unlock destiny. So you believe that God is giving us keys to unlock destiny via dreams and visions in the night. Okay, that's uh, fine and dandy. Um, You got any Bible verses that teach that? We see our nation shaking. We see the systems of the world shaking. We see banking systems going into trouble and businesses going into bankruptcy. So, what, Yep, seen that. What does this mean for us as believers? What does yeah, I'm 
pretty sure that you're not qualified to tell us that. What does this mean for us as Christians, and how do we align ourselves for prosperity and for success? How do we align ourselves for prosperity and success while the banking systems are shaking? Again, I just don't think you're qualified to begin to answer this question. I believe that in a time when a nation goes into crisis or into a time of shaking, that we can have to look to the scripture, and the Bible tells us that every kingdom that can be shaken will be shaken. Yeah. But we as believers are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this is true. We're inheriting an eternal kingdom. So God is shifting us and moving us and transitioning us out of thinking in the natural into thinking and apprehending things by the supernatural power of God. Yeah. Now, how did you make that leap exactly? I, I'm curious. I mean, how do you go from the the Bible passage that talks about kingdoms being shaken and how we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken that to, to somehow make this huge, ginormous leap across the Grand Canyon and land on the other side to basically say, then that means that God's trying to position us into the supernatural. Yeah, I'm not sure how the two fall, how the one follows the other. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't. He's taking us out of the realm of soul, which is our mind, our will, and emotions, and he's drawing us into the realm of spirit, where we begin to know him by wisdom, by communion, by consciousness, by seeking him to know him in ways that we've never known him before. Mm -hmm. So God's moving us out of our brain and moving us into experience. Uh, yeah, that's a formula for disaster, I think. I believe that God is the God of all wisdom and a God of all knowledge. And yeah. that as things begin to t deteriorate around us... Yeah, probably because a lot of people are turning off their brains. That's why things are deteriorating. It's because God is positioning his people to rise up in a season of darkness and bring his greatest light that has ever been seen. Uh -huh. We are entering into a season and time when God is going to release the Greater Works Ministry. Mm, so did he tell you this? Because uh, uh, I'd like to know where you got this information. Where does the where does the Bible talk about this greater works ministry thing? And how do you know that it's upon us now? Dynamics that we've never seen before, the creative realm of miracles, mm -hmm. the finances that are going to transfer out of the world into the kingdom of God. Okay, so let me see if I got this. So financial resources are going to transfer out of the natural world into the kingdom of God. Uh, will it just show up as an automatic deposit in my bank account? That would be helpful, you know. Because God is going to release a ministry and mantles and increase that we've never experienced before. So God's going to increase, it's going to release mantles. Hmm. How do you know this? I believe that the prophets of old looked to our time and said, wow, if we could just live in the, in the seasons of the end times and we could see God manifest himself the way that this group of people are going to see. Yeah, you know, that's kind of weird that you would put it that way. So the, uh, the prophets of old longed to see our time. You know, that's weird because Jesus talked about what the prophets of old longed for. And the thing, according to, well, Jesus, that the prophets of old longed for wasn't seeing the end of the world. Um, they longed to see the time of Jesus. They wanted to see the times that Jesus was alive, the promised Messiah was alive. Their hearts were set on the Messiah, not the end of the world. Um, yeah, that's what Jesus said. Um, boy, talk about you know swinging and missing here. I mean, it's like not even close. Um, God has been taking us through a pruning process. Sounds painful. 
I believe before increase and multiplication comes, there's always the decrease. There's always the humbling. There's always the cutting away. If we're fruitful, then God still prunes us because his goal is to bring forth an increase and a multiplication. Yeah. Again, I'm not sure how these thoughts of yours hang together. I just don't, I'm really not sure how you just transition from one thing to the other, uh, the way you're doing it, because I don't see how any of this stuff coherently fits together. So as we've been walking through the fire, we've yeah. been walking through the purification process, mm-hmm. and when gold or silver is processed, all the dross will come to the top. Yeah. And once it's skimmed away, then you can see as a mirror very clearly, and it begins to reflect the person's image that looks into that pond or into that pool. Yeah, not sure what this metaphor has to do with anything. And I believe God has released the fire to his body. Mm. Mm, so God's released fire on his body. <laughs> you know, you just listen. How is it that any anybody takes any of this seriously and thinks that what that that this has anything to do with biblical Christianity? And that there's been a process of purification that's going on, and He's causing all of our weaknesses mm-hmm. and uh, sin issues to be exposed. Sin issues. Because if you look at this year, 2011, this is the year of transition. Mm, okay. Have you talked to the third eagle of the apocalypse? This is a, 11 is a prophetic number that releases is prophetic revelation. It's well, according to Keith Kraft, it's like a bad number. I mean, you know that because the, the the mariachi trench. I mean, it you know it has something to do with the number 11, and that well, that was bad. Also, the number of disorganization. Well, see, see, there it is. So the number of disorganization, right? It's the number of uh, chaos. And so, what God is doing is He's looking at each of our lives individually. Uh-huh. He's looking at a nation collectively. Yeah. And He's releasing things that are going to begin to put things into order. He's shaking things that can be shaken. So, is He going to release the number twelve uh, to you know overcome the number eleven? Is that is that is that what God's going to do? Have you talked with Harold Camping? By the way, the October 21st is coming up. And uh, y'all remember uh, Harold Camping before he was uh, before he had a stroke and ended up in a in a nursing uh, home. Uh you know, he prophes, you know, the May 21st thing well it flopped. It didn't happen. Uh May 21st came and went. There was no rapture, but uh, Harold Camping assured everybody that uh, well, you know, that meant the end of something. And that the real end of the world is coming on October 21st. So you, you might want to call in sick that day, but um, probably not. But yeah, so, you know, he, he, all these people running around talking about, about all these numbers and things like that. And um, they don't sound like they're, they know what they're talking about at all. How is this possible? These, these are people who say that they believe the Bible. How is it that they come to such absurd, non-biblical conclusions? Answer? Well, there's a couple of them. One, they put their dreams and visions alongside of the Bible as if their dreams and visions have the same authority as the Bible, and as a result of it, their experience, their dreams and visions lead them astray. And, you know, it's, it's like having a twin source of authority. One of, the, one, of the big, you know, one of the big issues during the time of the Reformation had to do with papal authority. The, supposedly the, uh, the uh, Pope can speak ex cathedra. You know, and when he speaks ex cathedra, that what he's saying is on par with and as authoritative as scripture itself. Um, the, uh, what's going on here is we have dreams that are that have the weight of ex cathedra 
put upon them and and these as a result of it these people are being led astray by bizarre winds of doctrine and teaching that are really about as um confusing as uh, well as dreams can be confusing and that explains part of the problem um the you know the the other part of it is is that they don't have a sound biblical hermeneutic there there's a way in which the bible is intended to be read and what I mean by that is, is that uh, you know different genres of the Bible, uh, you know, are meant to be read particular ways. For instance, historical narrative, it's supposed to be read as well, historical narrative. A historical biography meant to be read as a historical biography. In other words, if it says that Jesus walked on the water, what that means is if you were to take a Discovery Channel film crew back in time, put them on the Sea of Galilee in a boat in a boat that was tailing the apostles' little vessel. Uh, you'd see Jesus, well, walking on the water. That's what that means. That means he was walking, and the surface that he was walking on was water. Got it? You see, it's not that hard. Um, and poetry is, well, poetry. Um, not to be, in, you know, it, it, poetry doesn't lend itself to literal interpretation. It uses word pictures to describe particular concepts and ideas, and you're to understand those things as being word pictures. For instance, Jesus, in, you know, quoting one of the Psalms, it says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, you know I, how I wish to gather you like a, you know, a hen gathers her chicks. Well, that doesn't mean that Jesus was the San Diego chicken, and, you know, because that would be like reading the text the wrong way. So the idea there is, is that you, you read the, you know, you read each of the different sections of scripture the way it's intended to be read, and it's pretty simple to figure this out. Just look at the genre of what's going on there, um, and then you've got the, you, you've got entire sections of scripture that are really theological commentary on the historical narratives, and they are to be understood as theological commentary on the historical narratives, and and that that theology, that doctrine, tells us what's going on spiritually, the things we can't see with our own eyes in the historical events that are occurring. So you, you get what I'm saying here? And so as a result of it, these fo folks have a faulty hermeneutic. They've they've exalted their dreams and vision to the level of ex-cathedra. And as a result of it, they just are wandering farther and farther and farther away, number one, from what God's Word really teaches, and number two, from sanity itself. As a result of it, you can end up with bizarre statements like we, what we've just been listening to. All right, we're up on our uh, first break. When we come back, we're going to be reading uh, the uh, uh, the collateral damage article written by Thabiti Anabwile uh, regarding the Elephant in the Room conference. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. And then, uh, time permitting, I want to uh, get to a uh, Albert Muller piece on the third, a, a new third way, reformist evangelicals in the evangelical future. Uh, I want to read that if I have time. And then in our sermon review today, we will be listening to a, um, a sermon from one of Stephen Furtick's new friends. And uh, David Crank is his name, and uh, we will go from there. Yeah, it's just kind of weird, weird Tuesday. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Being 
good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Uh, all right, we're back. <laughs> Man. Sorry, I was reading something on my Facebook wall. Warning, the uh, end of the world is not is supposed to happen, but it won't happen on the 21st. Um, 
Not sure what food is appropriate to serve uh, if you're going to have an end-of-the-world party on the 21st. Think about that long and hard. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, as I promised yesterday... From the blog of Thabiti Anabwile. This is at, you can find this at the Gospel Coalition and uh, just type in Thabiti's name there. The name of the article written by Thabiti and uh, was published at the end of, uh, well, over the weekend, I think. The uh, name of it is Collateral Damage in the Invitation of T.D. Jakes to the Elephant Room. And uh, Thabiti is somebody who is qualified to speak very, uh, very much to this issue the way he's speaking to it. Uh, much more so than even I am. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, In the 2007, uh, the Lord granted me the privilege of publishing the decline of the African-American theology from biblical faith to cultural captivity, which was published by InterVarsity Press. The book was a labor of sorrow and love sorrow because of how sharp and deep theological decline has been since the first writing African-Americans of the late 1700s and early 1800s and love because I ache to see my kinsmen, according to the flesh, brought to the gracious realms of God's salvation. For me, the book was an attempt to accurately trace the history of African-American theology using available primary source material and also to fulfill a pastoral obligation to advance the gospel and to refute error. See Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Because the book breaks rank, and the party line, I expected to be alone against an avalanche of criticism and angry protest. But the Lord has a people who have not bowed the knee to the Baals of theological heresy, a people who want to know the truth, and who instinctively, if not explicitly, knew something had gone wrong in the African-American church. Jesus' sheep hear and know his voice, and they follow him. Instead of an avalanche of criticism, I've pretty much heard a chorus of, finally, and it's about time. When theologically conservative, evangelical, or reformed African Americans call for reform in the African American church, they feel like midgets facing the titans and juggernauts of a word-faith charismatic pantheon. The task can seem so daunting and isolating internally. There's the constant fight with unbelief and resignation. There's wrestling with questions like, can the African-American church be reformed? Is the, is, is the church essentially apostate? Sometimes these questions have more to do with us than they have to do with the church, but the questions illustrate how intense and serious a battle this is. That's why it's difficult to see larger-than-life heretics given a platform in circles of pastors and leaders we respect and we regard as co-laborers in defense and confirmation of the truth. I'm breaking no stories here. The news of T.D. Jakes's invitation to the Elephant Room is widespread and rightly lamented by many. I'm just adding a perspective that hasn't yet been stated. This kind of invitation undermines that long, hard battle many of us have been waging in a, compu in a community often neglected by many of our peers. 
And because we often, we've often been attempting to introduce African-American Christians to the wider evangelical and reformed world as an alternative to the heresy and blasphemy so commonplace in some African-American churches and on popular television outlets, the invitation of Jake's to, perf- to perform in our circles simply feels like a swift tug of the rug from beneath our feet and our efforts to bring health to a sick church. McDonald and Driscoll can moderate discussions with anyone that they wish, but we kid ourselves if we think that inviting someone so recalcitrant about fundamental biblical teaching as Jake's can result in anything positive. McDonald, Driscoll, and others will not be the first to privately and publicly exhort, admonish, instruct, and challenge Jake's on this vital issue, to no avail thus far. And we kid ourselves if we think the elephant room invitation itself isn't an endorsement of sorts. We can't downplay, downplay the associations by calling for people to suspend judgment and, respond, and responding ad hominem against discern, discernment bloggers. We certainly can't do that while simultaneously pointing, out, uh, pointing to our association of the Gospel Coalition as a happy certification of orthodoxy and good practice, as Driscoll seems to do here with McDonald. There's a link to Driscoll's piece. This isn't on the scale of of uh, John Piper inviting Rick Warren. This is more akin to Augustine inviting Muhammad. This invitation gives a platform to a heretic. It's imprudent and counterproductive. Witness already the Trinity-related confusion and obfuscations happening since announcing Jake's involvement. Can the Lord squeeze lemonade out of this lemon? Well, absolutely, and I pray he does. Is it likely? Well, we'll see. What should McDonald do now? Uh, I'm not even sure. There's an argument to be made for confrontation. There's also an argument to be made for separation. If Jakes could be won over and would publicly teach Orthodox Trinitarian views, that could be huge. If the discussion turns warm and fuzzy and aren't we all brothers in the end, the damage could be irreparable to everyone. It's easy to play should've, could've, would've. Monday morning quarterbacking always leaves fewer bruises than taking Sunday morning snaps. I don't envy McDonald one bit. I pray for his courage and the Lord's grace, whichever way it goes. I hope you do too. But this I do know. The entire situation raises association, separation, and accountability concerns for me that I did not have to the same degree before now. It raises significant questions about how members of the Gospel Coalition associate and endorse beyond the Coalition's meetings themselves. For me, it tests the bounds of cooperation. I'm no fundamentalist with well-established separation doctrines, but as one attempting to draw lines, cardinal biblical lines, mind you, and a community flooded with heresy, this is no easy relationship to balance. Can I really endorse or remain quiet on an event that features a heretic I'm committed to opposing in writing? I don't think so. That decision is easy for me. More difficult, can I really endorse or support a brother who willingly associates with such a heretic and extends them a platform? Painful. That's sobering. I don't even know if I'll watch The Elephant Room this time around. But there are three things I redouble my efforts to watch. My life, my doctrine, and the sheep the Lord entrusted to me. In the decline, I included a section on T.D. Jakes' view of God. For any interested, I've reprinted it below. 
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forever. Amen. Here's um, the Reviving Old Heresies section from T.D. Jakes' book called The Decline. Not T.D. Jakes, but uh, Thibidi Anabwile's book entitled The Decline. Reviving Old Heresies, Bishop T.D. Jakes and the Oneness Controversy. Perhaps the most significant conflict regarding the doctrine of God among African Americans at the close of the 20th century coincides with the rise and prominence of Bishop Thomas Dexter Jakes of Dallas, Texas-based Potter's House Ministries. Writers at the New York Times speculate that Jakes, uh, Bishop Jakes may be the next Billy Graham, while journalists at Time Magazine dub him the best preacher in America and one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. His influence extends to millions worldwide through his television outreach, speaking tours, and popular books. Regrettably, his doctrine of God is taken from doctrinal errors roundly rejected by many modern Pentecostal and evangelical churches, as well as the early Christian church. Bishop Jakes subscribes to a oneness Pentecostal doctrine of God. Oneness Pentecostalism is a branch of Pentecostalism with its modern roots extending to the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 and revival meetings featuring Canadian preacher R.E. McAllister and evangelist Frank Ewart between 1913 and 1915. McAllister and Ewart departed from traditional and orthodox Trinitarian views of the Godhead and taught the radical unity of God by denying that God existed in three persons. They held that one God appeared in three distinct modes or manifestations, as Father in creation, as the Son in redemption, as the Holy Spirit in regeneration and indwelling, but that there was only one real person in the Godhead, namely Jesus, also known as modalism, Ewart's teaching spread rapidly through Pentecostal denominations. At its 1916 General Assembly, the Assemblies of God, a major branch of Pentecostalism, rejected the oneness doctrine of God and required adherence to Trinitarian theology. Following that decision, nearly 160 oneness ministers formed their own denominations and alliances. The Pentecostal Assemblies of the World formed in 1918 as a multiracial denomination but split in 1924 along racial lines to become a predominantly African-American organization. Bishop T.D. Jakes stands as a contemporary, though reluctant, representative of oneness theology. Jake tends to eschew doctrinal disputes and offers an apathetic defense of his theology by saying, quote, Christians have always had diversity in their theology and will continue to do so. Nonetheless, historically Orthodox churches condemn or exclude heretical views as misrepresentations of, of the biblical faith, including the oneness doctrine of God for its denial of the Trinity. The Potter's House doctrinal statement reads, quote, Three dimensions of God. We believe in one God who is eternal in his existence, triune in his manifestation, being both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he is sovereign and absolute in his authority. This very title of the section, emphasizing dimensions of God, signals Jakes' heretical doctrinal stance. The brief exposition that follows uses typical modalist or oneness language referring to God as triune in his manifestations, but not in his person. Outside of this doctrinal statement, Jakes rarely ex explicates the theology informing his ministry. In one place, he writes, quote, one of the greatest controversies in all the Bible concerns the Godhead. He explains this, his sense of the controversy with rhetorical questions intended to undermine the credibility of Trinitarian of the Trinitarian doctrine. Quote, 
If there is one God, as Scripture teaches, how can there be a son who says that he is, he and his father are one? If there is only one God, how can there be three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy, uh, Holy Ghost? And these three are one? Aside from the fact that the biblical writers did not record any in, intra-Christian controversy involving the Trinitarian nature of God, Jake's own admission of the mystery involved in understanding the Trinity should steer him away from attacking Orthodox theological positions. However, intrepid in his conclusions, Jake's error revives and popularizes the ancient denounced heretical opinions of Sibelius in the 3rd century A.D., and in doing so, he does more than merely depart from tradition. T.D. Jakes, Jakes's oneness doctrine of God indirectly undermines the Christian view of God's character, God's revelation, and God's salvation by grace. Millions of people are influenced by Jakes's subtle representation of aberrant theology, and given the importance the Bible attaches to accurately knowing God, his revival of heresy is no small matter. That was... Um, from Thabiti Anabwile. Uh, we have plenty of time here, so I, I'm going to run a little bit long in this segment, but uh, uh, the the last article I'd like to leave this hour with is uh, before we go into our sermon review in the next hour, uh, save a sermon uh, preached by David Crank, um, is uh, is an article written uh, last week by Albert Muller called A New Third Way, Reformist Evangelicals in the Evangelical Fu- uh, Future. Muller writes, he says, Who is and who is not an evangelical? With whom should evangelicals cooperate in gospel efforts? And with whom not? Which theological expressions are truly evangelical and which are beyond the pale? These questions are central to the ongoing crisis of evangelical identity. In 1989, Carl F.H. Henry spoke to the urgency of answering these questions. The term evangelical is taking, has taken on conflicting nuances in the 20th century. Wittingly or unwittingly, evangelical constituencies, no less than their critics, have contributed to this confusion and misunderstanding. Nothing could be more timely, therefore, than to define what is primary and what is secondary in personifying an evangelical Christian. Just a year after Henry offered those words, Robert Brow called for a complete transformation of the evangelical theology and did so within the pages of Christianity Today, the flagship periodical once edited by both Carl Henry and Kenneth Cancer. Brow's manifesto was a clarion call to abandon the Augustinian Reformation model in favor of a new Arminian and postmodern model. Brow declared that the intellectual context of postmodernity made such an exchange necessary. He argued that doctrines such as the omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty of God would have to be radically reinterpreted in light of current thinking. He explicitly rejected doctrines such as the substitutionary atonement, a penal understanding of the cross, forensic justification, and imputed righteousness. With remarkable boldness, he called for the rejection of traditional of the traditional doctrine of hell, and he denied both a dual destiny after judgment and the exclusivity of God. As he made these demands, he informed his readers of the inevitability of an evangelical mega-shift because a whole generation of young people has breathed this air. Talking about postmodern air. In short, Brow was joined by Clark Pinnock and a core of fellow revisionists who called for a thoroughgoing reformulation of evangelical theology from top to bottom. 
Pinnock would call for embracing what he called the openness of God, his own version of a radical reconstruction of theism. Pinnock argued that the traditional evangelical doctrine of God is overly dependent upon Greek philosophy. In the style of Adolf von Harnack, Pinnock attempted what he styled as a radical de-Hellenization of, of Christian doctrine. He explicitly denied the omniscience of God by arguing that God cannot know the future decisions of free human creatures. With Brow, Pinnock called for the affirmation of creative love theism in the place of traditional theological frameworks. This new model of theism would redefine all doctrines in terms of a radical human libertarianism and a denial of any direct mode of divine sovereignty. They replaced the traditional understanding of divine sovereignty with an affirmation of divine, e divine effectiveness and ad hoc sovereignty, so to speak. Pointedly, they also rejected the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ arguing that evangelicalism has long been captive to a funus doctrine that slanders God's character. There was more, of course. They denied the ontological trinity and redefined the inspiration of the Bible in an, effect to, in an effort to avoid inspiration being over-supernaturalized. Similar calls were issued by Stanley Grenz, among others. Grenz called for a post-fundamentalist shift in an evangelical theology that would reconceive theology as a practical discipline rather than as a system of propositional truth. Roger Olson has encouraged the revisionists, even as he has called for forming a new center for evangelical theology. More recently, leaders of the emergent church, such as Brian McLaren, have called for rejecting the way evangelicals and virtually all Christians have read the Bible meta-narrative or storyline. McLaren does not want to modify the traditional rendering of the storyline of the creation, fall, redemption, new creation. He demands that we replace it after calling the entire scheme into question. McLaren does indeed call the entire structure of Christian theology into question, and he eventually dismisses belief in virtually all of the major doctrines of classical Christianity. He reduces the Bible to a library of human documents in which we can seek wisdom, and he dismisses the entire account of the salvation of sinners through the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ as an erroneous reading of the biblical tradition. I would argue that evangelicalism is marked by a desire to establish a conscious and genuine continuity with the classical, biblical, and orthodox Christian tradition. It is by now apparent that the reformist evangelicals are not actually calling for a reformation of evangelicalism as a movement of conscious continuity with the classical Christian tradition. At least some of them are calling for the abandonment of the very theological foundations on which the evangelical tradition was established. The old two-party system of American Protestantism recognized the polarities, the Protestant liberalism on the one end and evangelicalism at the other end. In terms of the larger culture, little distinction was made between evangelicalism and fundamentalism within the conservative party of Protestantism. The early evangelicals did not seek to abandon the classical Protestant paradigm, and they made this abundantly clear in almost every way imaginable. They rejected the limited theological preoccupations of some fundamentalists with withdrawal from theological and intellectual, intellectual engagement and the development of battle lines over secondary and tertiary issues. 
But the founders of the evangelical movement sought only to defend the crucial doctrines of biblical inerrancy and infallibility, the plenary verbal inspiration of the scriptures, the Nicene and Chalcedonian consensus on Christology, the substitutionary character of Christ's atonement, and the entire structure of the classical Christian tradition. They saw themselves as protecting this doctrinal inheritance from marginalization on the right and from accommodation on the left. They feared that fundamentalism was fighting over many of the wrong issues, even as the liberals were tearing down the house. The emergence of revisionist or reformed evangelicals raises all the questions of evangelical identity anew. Put bluntly, their proposals amount to what can only be described as a new form of Protestant liberalism. Their proposals, though informed by various intellectual movements that emerged in recent decades, are really quite at home within the world of Protestant liberalism that the early evangelicals explicitly rejected as sub-evangelical. Those evangelicals painfully and courageously left the mainline denominations and their institutions precisely because those churches and denominations had been lost to liberalism. They left positions, pulpits, and pensions behind as they did what they believed fidelity to Christ and the substance of biblical Christianity required. Now, all that the early evangelicals sought to defend is under, under sustained subversion from within the movement they gave their lives to build. A strange new ground has appeared on the theological landscape. A post-liberal movement has emerged from within Protestant liberalism, influenced by post-foundationalist thought and elements of post-modernism. These figures are clearly distinct from the older liberal models they dismissed as hopelessly mired in modernism, but they are not seeking to return to what theologian Edward Farley has called the old house of, of authority. At the same time, many of the revisionist evangelicals have been deeply influenced by the same intellectual currents. Moving from the right, these reformist evangelicals now meet the post-liberals in something of a new third way in Protestant theology. Interesting article, and he's absolutely right. Interesting that he chose the term third way. I think he knows what he's talking about. Third way, by the way, in case you're not familiar with it. Third way is one of the classic, classic ways in which fascist philosophy and the fascist worldview, identified and spoke about itself. I think uh, Albert Muller is on to something. Okay, we are up on our second break. and When we come back, we're going to be reviewing a sermon from a church we've never reviewed a sermon before from, but I get the feeling they're going to be regular here at Fighting for the Faith. And not because they're good, though. Um, yeah. Let's just put it that way. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Think of it this way. There's so many guys out there claiming to have visions from God. They're casting visions to be seeker-driven pastors, claiming that they've got people have got to get behind the vision. Well, that would make them prophets, wouldn't it? And all the prophets are to be tested according to Scripture. There's a test in Scripture given in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Regarding sound doctrine, if they're not teaching sound doctrine, they be false prophets. And there's Deuteronomy 18, I think, talking about chasing after other gods, or what they say doesn't come to true. That's right, it doesn't come true. If it doesn't come true, well, then they're false prophets. So here's the idea. We, we like to pick vision-casting pastors on a regular basis here at Fighting for the Faith to, well, to see if exegetically... The case can be made that they're really truly receiving visions from God, or if they're such miserable handlers of God's word that it, it well, stretches credulity beyond its limits or any capable limits uh, to really believe that they've received a vision from God. We're basically just seeing how they handle the text. And so today's sermon, brand new sermon by a new guy that we've never reviewed before. Well, we kind of give you a preview of him. His name is David Crank, and he, uh, he and his wife pastor a church in St. Louis, Missouri called Faith Church. The name of the sermon we'll be reviewing is entitled Full Potential. Yeah, we're, we're going to just see how good of a job David Crank does at rightly handling God's word. And since he's good buddies with Stephen Furtick, I would not put my money 
I wouldn't even bet a single dollar that David Crank is a sound exegete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to put money on this thing, put it the other way. Trust me. Well, we might as well let the music play out here. There's the resolve. So without any uh, further ado, here is um, David Crank and his sermon entitled, Full Potential. If you're looking for a church where you can come as you are without preconceived ideas about who you should be, how you should dress, or where you went to high school, Faith Church St. Louis. Really? You're going to let me come to your church even if I went to the wrong high school? Wow. You guys are so, so relevant and so accepting. Louis welcomes you to join us for our next live service. But until then, stay right where you are because Faith Church St. Louis is right now. You know, tonight I want to talk to you for the next few minutes, and we'll be recording this mostly for business people. And if you're a business person, you're going to love this talk tonight because it's actually a lab uh, that we're actually recording, and you get to hear it tonight. And I believe it'll be a blessing so, to you, a leadership. You're doing a sermon for business people. Hmm. What, what if you ain't in business? What if business not your thing? Uh, can you just get up and leave? Lab, uh, You know, potential, you've heard it said before, is God's gift to us. And what we do with our potential is our gift back to God. The ch- what? <laughs> potential is God's gift to us. Is, 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 uh, is um, David Crank part of the uh, human potential movement? Potential is God's gift to us. And uh, what we do with it, well, that's God's, that, that's our gift back to God. Hmm gift you know it's funny you know because the bible talks about well gifts that we receive from god uh in particular i you know just one comes to mind at, right off the top of my head uh if you have your bible ephesians chapter 2 talks about gifts from god uh, verse 8 for it is by grace you have been saved through faith this is not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by work so that no one may boast for we are god's workmanship created in christ jesus to do good works Hmm, I don't recall anything in the Bible being said about potential being God's gift to us. Hmm, this, hang on. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Yep, that smells like a different gospel to me. The truth is everyone in here has a God-given potential. There's one or two things that you do better than the next guy or the next girl because you're just good at that particular gifting. Oftentimes, though, I've watched some incredible, incredible gifted people fail to realize their full potential because they did not listen to people uh, of sound doctrine and sound judgment, and they never listened to... um... Mm. So, okay, so at least we know that David Crank believes in the theological category known as false doctrine. Okay, well, that's, that's that's a good start. Constructive criticism. You know, it's very, very important not to be beat down by critics, but oftentimes it is just very valuable to listen to people who have a differing opinion than yours about you. Because what I've noticed, the number one thing that keeps people from growing is this. You ought to write this down. If you are owner of a corporation, you dream about owning a corporation, you want to go to the next level, the biggest reason everybody thinks everybody else is the problem. I'm going to say it again. Everybody thinks everybody else is the problem. Everybody in here thinks they're one of the greatest drivers in the whole wide world. It's just the way it is. Everybody thinks that other person is just the person who's the problem on the road. Has anybody been going too slow and you're like, I can't believe they're going that slow? 
And then you go really, really fast, and you pass a bunch of people, and then later you're kind of going slow, and then somebody passes you really fast, and that same act that they did, that you did earlier, you called them. They must be a raving, insane maniac. Because what we see other people do, we think differently about it when we do it. So I want to ask you a couple questions. I think the greatest communicators in the world that I listen to that have challenged me over the years have always started with asking questions. And here's my number one question to you. Is there an area of growth that you've been stifling? That question is, is there an area of growth that you've been stifling? Mm-hmm. Is there an area of growth I've been stifling? Nah, nothing comes to mind. Um, and by the way, I have a master's degree in business administration, so I'm waiting for the part where I'm supposed to really enjoy the, uh, really get something from the sermon. So far, that hasn't happened. As somebody who understands business. Is there an area that you're just kind of meandering through life on, and you know you need work in that area, but you don't want to do it because, after all, it's just too much work? Here's the difference between athletes who win and corporate executives who win is they, they, they get up a little earlier than everybody else. Now, they only have 24 hours in a day, just like the rest of us, but they tend to get up a little earlier than everybody else. They tend to work out a little harder than the next guy. It is Okay, so if you want to be successful in business, get up early and work out. Got it. Okay. The set of Tiger Woods and that even when he was a little boy, that he was always out on the golf course practicing what he loved to do. Yeah, that's kind of a lame metaphor now because I just saw the uh, world golf rankings and Tiger Woods actually fell out of the top 50. So I wonder if that still applies. That's another point that you can write down. You'll never be that great at something that you hate to do. Now, let me balance that by saying... You, you got any Bible verses? Any, well, not verses. Any passages from God's Word that you think might be a good thing to be reading and teaching from? Because, yeah, because the Apostle Paul, uh, via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that the job of a pastor is to preach the Word in season and out of season. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what you're supposed to be doing here. This little business pep talk thing about getting up early and exercising and things like that, um, yeah, that doesn't actually rise to the standard that uh, God's Word lays out for a pastor where he's supposed to preach the Word. Now, I understand that you're into, you know, training monkeys and stuff like that, but, yeah, the monkey training is not the thing you're supposed to be doing during a sermon either. Just wanted to make sure you understood that, too. Every job gets mundane, day after day, week after week. You just hate getting up on Mondays every day to go to that same water cooler and drive down the same stupid road. And sometimes it gets old. But let me tell you, my daddy told me. You know what's funny you would talk about that? Because you, do you understand how difficult it is at times for me to get up every day and go to work and and review the same mundane, Bible-twisting type of stuff from seeker-driven pastors? I mean, do you understand just how difficult that is? I mean, it's like you guys, like, never deviate from your bad theology and, like, even remotely at – I mean, it never even accidentally happens anymore that you guys excite me with sound biblical doctrine. It's every day I go to work and I listen to sermons by seeker-driven guys preparing to to do my program here, and every single day – Every Monday, every Tuesday, every, you know, it's the same old thing. You guys are just, you, I mean, you couldn't properly exegete your way out of a paper bag if your life depended on it, and I gave you a map to do so. I mean, it's sad. He told me something that was good. He said, sometimes the mundane is a good thing. 
It is great, and it is a super opportunity that you have the great opportunity to have a job to keep going to every single day. I get up every morning, and I, Nicole, I look over at her, and I look at the same woman every morning. Y'all looking for the trick in that question? I mean, she has to look at me every morning. I know what you're thinking right now. My gosh, your hair just absolutely looks phenomenal. <laughs> you're, now, you're laughing really hard right now. No, we don't always look our best. We're not always at our best, but there's really some solitude and some peace in sticking with something. But while you're doing it, try to do it a little better. In other words, when I was trying to get Nicole to marry me, I mean, when she was trying to get me to marry her, we were always thinking about what we could do to help each other out. What can I do today to bless her? What can I do to make her life a little happier? Then the day after we got married, I got to thinking, what can she do for me? Come on, y'all. You understand what I'm saying? And so in corporate world, it's the same way. You want that job. You do that resume. I mean, you're borderline lying. No, I'm lying. Now you lied. You lied on that resume. You told him you could do things you couldn't possibly do, that you thought you could listen to Dave Delgado, and you could listen to Anthony Robbins, and you could listen to Tony Morgan, and you could listen to all these great leaders and bring yourself to that level. But then once you land the job, it gets really easy just to show up every day and go, you know what, today is not a great day to start that. I think I'm going to start that later. And my point to you is that question I asked you a moment ago. Does anybody in here remember that question I asked you a while ago? Nope. You must not be a good communicator then. Um, yeah. Uh, what does this have to do with the Bible? I mean, isn't the name of your <clears throat> church, Faith Church, um, don't you think that if you're a pastor, that your job is to preach the word? What does this have to do with anything? And why do I need a crucified and risen Savior for any of this? And the reason why you don't remember is because you didn't write it down. Anybody? What is that, ma'am? Good job. Give her a hand right there. Two or three people. Is there an area of growth that you have been stifling? That's the question. Well, it's apparent that the area of growth that you've been stifling, uh, David, is the area regarding sound biblical hermeneutics and exegetical preaching. It's clear that you've been stifling that. wonder if God put that potential inside of you. Now, I've noticed this about life. Most people exist through church life, through corporate life, and they don't make it very far. And here's the reason why they don't make it far, is they don't intend on really applying what they hear. See, the Bible said you must be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. So people every week... Yeah, you, would you care to read that in context? I mean, it'd be nice to hear some Bible so that we can know what to do. I, don't you find that odd? I mean... The seeker-driven guys, they'll sit there and say, we, you need to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Um, yeah, but there's the thing that they constantly leave out, the hearing of God's word. Well, why don't you preach all of it so that I can hear it, you know, in context, in order to know what to do? I mean, here you guys are constantly saying, oh, you need to be a doer, not just a hearer, but you never get to hear God's word when those because those guys don't ever preach it. Hmm, weird, isn't it? Week come and say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. Oh, I need you to pray for me. Oh, I, just, I, just, I just limped in here today. If I could get a word that encouraged me, it really, really would help me out. I just need you, you, you to help me. Me, you, me, you, me. I need you, you, you need to help me. Well, that's great. 
So what I encourage people to do is, you need to come back on Sunday night with a notebook. You need to come back on Tuesday night with an ink pen or an iPad or, or your phone and start writing this stuff down and then apply what you have heard. The question is, is there any area in... No, listen, the question is, is like, is there even enough Bible that I'm hearing to even apply anything? I mean, so far we've heard one, one, out of context verse by the way from the sermon on the mount um yeah so uh yeah uh, again you know if you want me to be a doer of the word don't you think you ought to make sure that i hear it hmm growth in your life you've been stifling have you been holding out on yourself let's ask that question have you been holding out on yourself sometimes holding out on myself (laughs) sounds like one of those psychological questions Imagine Pirate Roseboro sitting on a couch, and the therapist says, So, um, Chris, um, have you been holding out on yourself? And then the breakthrough moment comes in. <laughs> That's it. I've been holding out on myself. I haven't been giving myself what I need, and as a result of it, I've been holding out on myself. And this is it. <clears throat> What does this even mean? My dad did it, and I noticed that I started doing it. I would um, get around people that were equal with me or below me, so I felt better about me. I wouldn't want to hang around people of churches uh, that were really big because it made me really feel like we, our, our church wasn't doing anything in our community. We wasn't reaching anybody. And so I was always hanging around people who were common, and they, they did just enough to get by. And then after my dad passed, and I, I looked and took inventory of his life, I took inventory of my life at 35 years old. I realized there's a lot of areas of growth and opportunity that I could arrive at, but the only way I was going to do it is I was going to have to stop hanging around with the turkeys and start soaring with the eagles, and I can't be intimidated by the heights that the eagles fly. I must look at them and go, I want to learn how to fly like an eagle. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Now, I got any passages from the Bible that teach this uh, theology, hmm? Um, yeah, I mean, it's obvious you haven't been hanging out with the exegetical eagles. You haven't been hanging out with the good hermeneutical eagles. Um, at this point, uh, you've been hanging out with the exegetical turkeys, uh, the, the ones who not only don't soar, but apparently can't fly either. Um, yeah, you, we're not, you're not really taking us to the big high heights of, uh, of, you know, of understanding God's word, um, I mean, this thing, I mean, it's stuck in the mud. This is just ridiculous. But nobody makes us do it. We have to get up. We got to make that call. We got to write that down. We got to start exercising. We got to push back the plate. We have to do something that nobody else has done to get something we've never had before. So let's learn from some common pitfalls that I noticed that people make. And we'll go to Proverbs 12, verse 15, and it says this. Oh, here, here we got a, we've got a proverb. Uh, Proverbs, uh, okay, wow. Ugh. Deep biblical teaching going on here. Pre- preaching the Proverbs uh, fortune cookie style. Okay. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto the counsel is wise. I see so many people who are incredibly talented in ministry and in the corporate world. But if you think you already are, you never will be. Oh, brother. Uh, yeah, you said the business folks would find this sermon to be, like, profound and great and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, like, 
I wouldn't, uh, sorry, I wouldn't even pay a penny for this advice. You got to write that down. That is a phenomenal statement right there. If you think you already are, you never will be. Did Confucius say that one? Is, is it, was that Confucius that wrote that one down? Have you, and I know you have, you ever had a conversation with somebody and you were trying to help them a little bit, you had a word for them, you needed to critique them a little bit, you could really help their mojo in an area, and you begin to share with them how to do this in the most friendly manner that you possibly could, but it went right over their head and they begin to say, yeah, I know people like that. Anybody in here know what I'm talking about? Come on, raise your hand. I know you do. You do it. You're like, you didn't get it. Because that scripture is so right. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts, and that's in Proverbs 21, verse 2. So God knows our hearts, and God loves everybody. God loves everybody. Let's shout that. But God is pleased with some more than another. Not because he loves them more. Oh, man. I mean, it's like he's just rolling his own theology and smoking it. This is horrible. But because he likes what they do more. So there might be a mom here tonight or listening online or listening to this audio lab thinking, wait a minute, I got two kids and I love the one. The one, he's a priest and he's doing great things to help the community and the church. I got another son over here who's in prison for killing a priest and stealing out of the offering. Now, I love both of them the same, but I tend not to talk about them in a braggadocious manner in our community except the one that I'm proud of. She's not really gonna, she's not really gonna hide it, but she's not gonna put it on the postcard. Hey, guess what? Johnny's still serving life without prison, or life without parole in prison. I just wanna let you all know that this little story about the mother and the two sons actually doesn't appear in the Bible. You know, instead, we do have a story about two brothers and um and a father um you know maybe i should read that it, it's commonly known as the story of the prodigal son and um hmm, yeah maybe i should read that one yeah you'll find the story in luke chapter 15 in fact i should probably read this with the two other parables that go with it because this is a basically the story of the prodigal son as it's been as it's come to be known is actually uh, is the third parable in a series of parables regarding repentance and so uh, Luke chapter 15 verse 1 here's what it's how it starts now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and he eats with them <laughs> Yes, he do. Uh, Luke 15, verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin." 
that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Yeah, notice that God is is pleased, is is really excited, is really rejoicing, and even the the angels are rejoicing over sinners who repent. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> next, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me." In other words, drop dead. So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired Servants. Notice he's still trying to get himself out of his own situation by buying his way out, selling himself into servanthood. So he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's not able to get out the other part. Watch this. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for the son was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son, this is the son, by the way, who did everything right, right? He didn't want his father dead, didn't squander money on reckless living. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, well, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And he was angry, and he refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, doesn't say that, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. I, I was, it, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead. 
He's alive. He was lost. And now he is found. Yeah, that's how the Bible describes these things. I'm not hearing this stuff from David Crank, though. She still loves him the same, but she might be more pleased with the other. So I'm telling you right now, our opening statement was this, is, and I'll read it. It says, potential is God's gift to us. What we do with this gift, what we do with our gift is our gift back to God. So, yeah, you know, going with the story of the prodigal son there, um, yeah, uh, well, um, hmm, God is rejoicing over sinners that repent. These would be ones who squandered their potential who slapped God in the face, um, uh, you know, basically did everything wrong, but they repent and come to him knowing that they have a merciful and forgiving father. Hmm. So I know you know and I know that there are greater things that are yet to be done in our lives. How do we do this? How do we do it? Let's make sure we are not those people that I ask you, if you had talked about, had you had a conversation with people that went right over the hits, you said yes. Let's try that one more time. You've had a conversation went right over the head. One more time. Raise your hand. All right. Now let's flip that. Why do I get the feeling this is going to go right over um, David Crank's head? Around. Do you think that maybe somebody had a conversation with us about us and it went right over our heads? You're really smart. You listening to the audio lab, you'll understand this very clearly if I paint the picture. A while ago, 80% of the people raised their hand, and just now 100% of the people raised their hands because you were honest. And that is one of the keys to getting the best out of life. You've got to be honest. You can't address something that you're avoiding. You have to address the... So Christianity is all about getting the best out of life. Hmm. Boy, then the apostles were fools. I mean, think about the apostle Paul. I mean, how many times was he beaten and scourged and stoned and... I mean, all the times that he was, his life was in danger as a result of his preaching of the gospel. Yeah, I think of the Apostle Peter, he and his wife were martyred. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> so much for getting the best out of life. Weird. Hard questions in your life. And I, I got this thing to where I hate people taking pictures of me when I don't know they're taking pictures of me because, especially from the side, Come on, if you guys know what I'm talking about. I got chest or drawers disease. That means my chest already went to my drawers. And so I hate that side profile. Don't do that to me. Let me know. And I love it. In fact, the other night we had pizza after church Sunday night. And they, they took some pictures. They put it on the web. And they caught me. So, so now we're talking about you. Okay. A couple times. And apparently I must have been sucking it in just right. And I thought, well, that ain't too bad. I'd had a cold and a little bit of the flu for three days. I was down a little. How many of y'all sometimes glad for No, okay, no. But we don't like to address that. But then we go, okay, the, 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 the obvious solution is to, is to just pretend it doesn't exist and make sure nobody takes pictures of me from the side. No, the real solution would be to do what Dr. Priscilla says to do, which is don't eat after 6 o'clock and eat some crazy-looking green stuff in the morning and don't go to Krispy Kreme, and then you could be like him and look like him. And I want to do that, but I'm not sure I want it that bad. Uh, do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this? I'm just really curious. Because, man, it sure does feel good to have some pizza and some cinna sticks and an ice cream sandwich and then drink a Diet Coke just to balance it out. You know what I mean? 
you know that Buddhists can apply this uh, just fine. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian. I mean, there's good Mormons and Muslims who can apply these uh, tips and principles, if you would. Again, uh, how is this biblical teaching again? But, 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 no, no, no. But we can't point our fingers at him because he looks good and he feels good because we won't address the areas that need addressed in our own life. We must get honest with ourselves as David did. And he said, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. No, no, it's, it's the economy. That's the problem. That's why my business is not growing. Well, I see a man sitting here on the third, fourth, what, third, fourth row right now. So this is a sermon to help people's businesses grow. Mm-hmm. Did they teach you this at seminary? Do you have a master's degree in business at all? I mean, do you have a degree in business? I mean... Um, I have a master's degree in business administration with an emphasis in leadership and organizational change. And so far, I haven't heard anything that would really cause someone's business to grow. That his mattress stores are blowing up at an unprecedented proportion in our community. He's putting up stores as fast as he possibly can. Everybody else says nobody's going to spend money on mattresses right now. They're going to sleep on whatever they're going to sleep on because things are tight. Well, not in his world. He believes that he has a better mattress than everybody else. And if you ever go to his store, I promise you, you're not leaving without a, a new mattress. Because he, he'll say, you know, take it now, pay me later. I don't care. I just want And then once you sleep on this for three days, you'll be begging me to bring your kids one of these. Because he believes differently than other people. But there's a difference. Nobody has more hours in a day than we do. But some people have more discipline as well as an optimistic attitude about what God is able to do in their lives. Ephesians 3 verse 20, if you'll join me there, they'll put it on the screen. Ephesians 3 verse 20. Yeah, I can't wait to hear how you take this verse out of context. Yeah, I'm sure Ephesians 3 has all kinds of human potential and business advice in it. 20. Now unto him that is able, able, didn't say he's gonna, it said he is what? Shout it loud. What is he? What? He's able to do. Uh, 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 he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly and above all he could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us. God's saying, "I'm able to do it, but are you able to handle it? Able to do what? And handle what? What are you talking about? You read this verse out of context. Uh, by the way, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Ephesians chapter three. I mean, let's try to figure out what's going on here. By the way, the three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation they are context. Context and context. So that being the case, let's um, let's take a look at the context. Now, he said 3 verse 20, so let's add a few verses here. Um, let's see, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. That will, that'll, that'll give us some context here. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness to access 
with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Nice little doxology right there in the middle of the uh, thing. Um, But uh, yeah, it's... um, has nothing to do with business principles or successful living or anything like that. It's more or less a prayer stuck right into the middle of this epistle. It makes you wonder what happens in chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." Hmm. Interesting there. At verse 1, Paul is making a point of the fact that he's a prisoner. He's writing the letter from prison. Hmm. I thought this is all about, you know, experiencing, you know, some cool, successful life thing and business success. Why isn't any of that mentioned in the passage when I read it in context? Hmm. Are you able to work really hard? Are- yeah, do it all the time. You, you seeker-driven guys really make me have to work hard. Are you able to to risk? Are you able to reach your full potential? Are you able to do what few people are willing to do to get to the next level in your life? I don't even know what you're talking about. What's the next level for me? Hmm? One of the hardest things that you'll ever do in life is forgetting those things which are behind. You made one. Do I go from being captain of Pirate Christian Radio to being an admiral? Is that the next level? One or two failed mistakes you you put some money on the line and you lost it and you dreamed really big but now you're afraid to dream again because you're like i don't know i don't know if that's going to work or not and after all i can't risk being disappointed on that level and God- again what does this have to do with uh, ephesians chapter three like because when i read it in context there was nothing here about achieving the next level or anything like that God's sitting back going, hey, everything you've done up to this point has been a lab. You've been checking it out, and the recipe didn't turn out exactly the way you wanted it to, but it, it's not a complete disaster unless you sit back in your, and cry about what didn't happen. What you and I have to do is look fear in the face and say, wait a minute, I'm going to make the necessary adjustments that I have to make, and I'm going to win this time. I'm going to be the person who reaches their full, full potential, and when things are being given at church, speeches are being given online, I'm going to listen, write it down, make the appropriate changes so I can be all God has called me to be and arrive at my full potential where God said he's able to take me, but am I willing to go there? Uh, So far, you haven't taught anything that would take anybody to like the next level, at least the next level up. It might take them back a few levels because, I mean, all you're basically telling them is, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try real hard. Well, duh. I mean, I get this kind of advice from my mom. 
Uh, isn't your job? Yes, see, this pastor really needs to figure out what he needs to do to apply himself so that he can go to the next level. And that would be the next level of faithful preaching of God's word. Because, <laughs> like, any steps in that direction would be an improvement at this point. Here is a huge, huge thing that I believe keeps us back. Over in Hebrews 11, verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I love that. He... Why do you love it? I mean, you're just ripping this verse out of context. What am I saying? I mean, if, if I didn't know the story, I mean, I wouldn't be excited about that verse. Why don't you tell him the whole story? He refused to be known as that old person that he used to be. I was recently hiring somebody and they began to talk and, and, and not in a bad way at all. I want to level this. I mean, it wasn't anything ignorant at all. It was just a little lesson that could be learned. This person said, oh yeah, I saw the game face on brother so-and-so and I, I know it's hard for me to take that for real. And I said, just wait just a second. What you saw on that person wasn't a game. They would actually be your boss. They would actually speak into your life. But if you continually try to equalize people that are in your life right now and see them where they were 20 years ago when you knew them, they will never be able to offer opportunities to you to get you to the next level. Sometimes people come up to me and say, I've known you for 35 years. Really? Yep, I've actually known you for 39 years. Your dad and mom came to my church and I changed your diaper. I saw you naked, you messed in your pants. I knew you when you were baby Dave. What? You're kidding, right? Do you mean that the only thing you're receiving out of my ministry, out of my life, is one time you changed my golden pamper? What? You've got to be kidding me. So equalization and equalizing people that are with you right now, don't do that. I'm saying esteem everybody as somebody who could be above you. And when you do that, you can benefit from their anointings. Even people that are financially broke have something to tell you in reverse. What? I'd like you to, could you diagram this for me, please? Because I don't know what you're talking about. Don't equalize. Don't equalize. Faith Church St. Louis recognize. Well, there you go. That was the. Um, <laughs> I, I can't call that a sermon, uh, but it occurred during. You know, if you were to follow a traditional church model, that that thing, that speech, that lecture, that um, convoluted mess of nonsense that really wouldn't help you do anything, um, it, it occurred during what would normally be called the sermon time. And uh, that's one of uh, Stephen Furtick's new friends, uh, David Crank. Uh, he preached at his church this past Sunday. And, uh, of course, Keith Kraft had to come along. And, uh, well, I wonder if uh, David Crank has heard of the uh, Mariachi Trench. <laughs> Just unbelievable. Um, so, all right, so we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I don't even know where to go with that. I mean, I'd... Go with the the stuff I was preaching about from Luke fifteen. That that would yeah that was chock full of gospel. And uh, yeah, that's all I can say. Your God is gracious and merciful and kind, and he want, he really desires your repentance and forgiveness. And uh, he he will not turn you away when you come to him repentant. 
seeking his forgiveness. He truly is merciful in that way. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Didn't hear anything about the cross. I don't even think we... Did Jesus even get an honorable mention in that thing that we just listened to? Ay, 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 ay. All right. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Uh, visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and uh, support us financially. We truly do need your financial help to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you into the world. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button there at our website, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, uh, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.